Lesson eight, judgment, joy, and conquest, true worship. Here we come to three, eight through 13. The first part of Zephaniah describes judgment upon Judah. Uh, the second part describes in general judgment upon the nations. Before we get to the third part, the joy of the restoration, we're gonna see a summary then of this universal judgment. Verse eight, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise up and seize the prey. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So now we have another dramatic antithesis. Zephaniah is now presenting a reversal of the scattering of Babel. Instead of the unrighteous being scattered in judgment, now they're going to be gathered in judgment. This is a judgment that's going to be seen as a blessing for the righteous, and it's an event that they are to wait for with a confident expectation. Zephaniah changes here from the first or from the third person masculine plural to the second person, and that's what he had used in chapter two, one through three, when he speaks about the meek of the earth to heed his warning. The imperative to wait, you wait, it seems to be, I think, for the benefit of the remnant. They are being directed to look forward, wait for, I'm going to move. They're directed to be looking forward to the removal of the pagan nations so that the remnant can serve God uninhibited. Even in captivity, they're supposed to wait in anticipation for the day when I rise up and seize my prey. The wonderful picture now, this word rise seems to be in a legal context. The judge now, this is the perfect judge we just uh, met, or the need of whom we just met, who now is rising to deliver his sentence of guilt. In fact, uh, several times where this word rise is used and God is the subject, it's followed by action verbs, and it has legal connotations to it. Let me look at a few here in Psalms. Psalm 76 and verse 8. God arose to judgment to save the humble of the earth. Psalm 74, 22. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Psalm 68. Stand up, O God. Be present now, and we, your people, will rejoice. For he who rides upon the clouds is coming. On the other hand, Psalm 1, 5. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. And in standing then, the judge makes his decision, his judgment, mishpot, a very common word in the Old Testament, but it's most frequently used in the book of Deuteronomy, 37 times in Deuteronomy. It's a judicial word. It speaks of the process in which disputes are governed. And it's God has an issue with the wicked. And it's simply this. They are found outside of Christ. They are not hidden. The trouble isn't that they're not good people. The trouble is they don't bow down before Christ. That's why they're judged. They're not good people. Their evil has been abundant. All of their good works are nothing. The righteousness of the entire world, worthless. There's a wide gap between the demands of God's law and the works of the sinner, and it's a gap that the sinner can't fill that sinner who will stand before God in a universal judgment for their iniquity. God rises and he makes his decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, says Joel 3.14. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
It's a different word than Zephaniah is using translated decision, karotz, not mishpot, but there's a similar intention. God is rendering his decision, his verdict. It's the valley of God's decision. They've already made their decision. This isn't an invitation text. This is God has made his decision. You've already made yours. And to render this judgment, then God's going to gather nations. The word used for gather, asaf, it's very common in the Old Testament, but there's only three times where this form of the verb has God as the subject. And the other two times are found back in Ezekiel 22, 19 and 20. And the prophet says this, I'm going to gather you in the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath and I will lay you there and melt you. Zephaniah uses this word in the same way to speak of this gathering for this same judgment by fire. God will gather the nations and assemble kingdoms. And the picture of judgment then is expanded from Israel to the nations and the kingdoms of the earth. It's a picture of judgment on all believers inside Israel, outside Israel, inside the church, outside the church. And the gathering of nations and rebellion There's something to be terrified about, but those who are hidden shouldn't cower in fear because the gather of the nations is God's own working. The gathering of the armies of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 28, Revelation chapter 20, the final battle, the day of God, a counterfeit gathering of those impotent powers. As the people of God gather and worship, the kingdoms of this world will gather to defeat God, but they'll find out that they were being gathered, and they'll find themselves judged. And in the final day, God will release Satan from his millennial prison. He will use him as an instrument to gather the unrighteous for their own judgment, just like he used Pharaoh to gather the armies of Egypt to be judged in the day of the Lord, in the outpouring of his wrath in the Red Sea. And this gathering, this pouring out of judgment, it's another allusion to the floodwaters of Noah, a pouring out of judgment upon the wicked as the judgment water poured out becomes a demonstration then of the devouring fire of God's jealousy. And these, again, they're not simply fires of punishment. They're fires of destruction. Jeremiah 21, 14, I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in the forest thereof, and it shall devour all things round about it. Now, Zephaniah 3, as we've seen some of this already throughout the book, this prophecy, it begins to unfold in a three-level fulfillment. In 586, Jerusalem is leveled by the Babylonians. In 70 AD, Jerusalem is leveled by the Romans. In the final judgment, the nations will be leveled by God. Zephaniah didn't fully comprehend how this judgment is going to come about, but the New Testament reveals it for us. It is through the work of Jesus. Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And so Christ's victorious work had already begun. 
in his earthly ministry, what does he do? He binds Satan. He invades his house. In his death and in his resurrection, he disarms the powers and the principalities and triumphs over them. God, by raising Jesus, subjects all things to him, Ephesians 1.9. A victory gather, uh, over the gathering of his enemies. And yet the fullness of that victory, we're still waiting. For that fullness, it will come for that day when the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Shortly, it's near. And at present, we do not yet see all things put under him, Hebrews 2, 8. And in fulfillment of the expectations of the Messiah, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to gather. He gathers the wheat into the granary. He burns the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this gathering will have a dual purpose, the gathering of the elect for reward, the gathering of the wicked for judgment. When Satan deceives the nations and he gathers his armies to invade the kingdom of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, then the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He will take vengeance on the deceiver. And then consuming the armies with fire from heaven at the great white throne judgment. All the nations, all the creatures, all flesh will be judged. Whoever's name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels to be tormented forever and ever. It's a sobering prophecy that we're reading about. But it doesn't end here. The judgment of the nations, the purging of evil are ultimately for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22, ultimately for a restoration of the true people of God. The message of Zephaniah is one of judgment and fire and destruction, but only for those who aren't found united to the great judge, for the true people of God. This is a prophecy of joy. It's a prophecy of conquest. And that's what the prophet now turns his attention to in the last section of the book, the joy in the conquest. As we come to the last of Zephaniah's uh, three major sections, we find that just as the judgment and desolation would be universal, so would the restoration and redemption. Extending to the peoples would be a restoration of a pure language. Look at verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Now, we just read about the, these universal judgments, the destruction of all things, the hopelessness of sin. And now we come to an explosive prophecy of redemption of the church universal throughout the globe. Babel was the language of rebellion, and so God takes the initiative, and He confuses the languages of humanity, and He scatters the people across the face of the globe. But in the day of restoration, God gathers His people to restore a pure language. And in the accomplishment of this redemptive goal, Klein writes, the dispersive effects of the diversification of tongues would be reversed. A pure language would be restored. There would be a regathering of a new mankind to receive a name of praise. Zephaniah is saying Babylon is going to be reversed. Or more accurately, we could say the fracturing of Babylon 
is healed, or of Babel, is healed in the unity of the people of God as Christ gathers His people together, as Jesus, as God accomplishes His redemptive purposes. He begins to gather what was scattered. He begins to unite what was divided, the tongues which once babbled in confusion that couldn't comprehend true knowledge. Now call upon the name of the Lord out of the mouth will no longer proceed blessing and cursing but only what gives glory to God, fulfilling the right use of human language, acknowledging Him as their sovereign, their covenant Lord. Now, certainly in the restoration of 539, there's a a gathering of God's people, right? This small remnant, this lack of enthusiasm, the lack of a universal scope to it. What's it tell us? Well, there's a bigger fulfillment than the restoration that's waiting. The Old Testament anticipated something more, and the New Testament sees it fulfilled. This picture of calling upon the name of the Lord speaks of the worship of the true people of God. It's a call to worship. That's how you begin your service. Almost a hundred times in the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis chapter 4, the people of God are referred to as those who call upon the name of the Lord. We are called by Him so that we can call upon Him. Psalm chapter 51, verse 15, often used perhaps in your church as a call to worship. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth shall show forth your praise. And then over and over again, uh, we see it in the Psalms, Psalm 105 and verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Already in the Psalms, there's an expectation that the testimony will spread beyond Israel to the nations. Joel chapter 3 and verse 5, Joel speaks of the day of the Lord as the day in which the people would be calling on the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, uh, the the first sermon of the New Testament church. What a fantastic sermon this is. Uh, Peter's uh, preaching from the book of Joel. And significantly, his message comes in the context of a Pentecostal gathering, a gathering of those who are far off. Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. And in this gathering of God to Pentecost, where God comes, the Holy Spirit, He supersedes the confusion of languages by His Spirit enabling the apostles to speak a full range of tongues that all could understand. Peter preaches that what Joel had said was materializing on the very stage on which he stands at Pentecost. And so he quotes the prophet Joel and says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter takes that and he applies it to Christ. The Messiah has come. We call upon his name and in doing so, every time a person calls upon the name of Jesus, The prophecy of Joel and of Zephaniah is coming to pass. Notice what Paul does with that same phrase, those who call upon the name of the Lord. In Romans 9, he talks about preparing vessels, prepared vessels, right? Some prepared for destruction, some prepared for mercy. And again, he uses Old Testament temple terminology, vessels, vessels of the temple. And then he says, that's us. Romans 9, 24, even us whom he has called 
not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul's teaching that we have been called by the Lord, and so we call upon the Lord. Language that's familiar to the Jew, and Paul's running that through the filter of Pentecost. And then we see in 1 Corinthians how Paul writes to those who in every place then call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's Paul doing as he so often does in his epistles? He's connecting Old Testament dots for the New Testament church. Here are Jews and Gentiles occupying the same pews in a predominantly Gentile city, and he's making a point about who constitutes the people of God who call upon God and how this prophecy is fulfilled in his church. The church is the assembly of the people of God meeting all over the globe, called by him and calling upon him. Zephaniah is prophesying, Paul is teaching that there is a radical expansion of God's covenant. His program for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that in him all the nations of the earth, of the world will be blessed, is taking place every time we worship. The prophet Zephaniah had said, all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And Paul is saying, this is it. In the church, the prophecy begins to be fulfilled In the church, pure speech begins to be restored. The church is comprised of all those who in every place call upon the Lord. That's why Paul later goes on to say, you are the temple. The covenant promises have come to pass. The church is in every place. God dwells within and in every place where his people call upon his name. And so what is the church to be? The inauguration of the New Testament church is to be then in our testimony to the gospel and to Christ, the place of the gathering of many languages into one language. The church is truly the multicultural, universal society of God's people. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and all are one in Christ. True worshipers are those who have been dispersed. Zephaniah, the daughters of my dispersed ones. Who are the daughters of my dispersed ones? The covenant sanctions of, of Deuteronomy 4.28 and, uh, and 64, uh, chapter 30 and verse 3, they'd warned that you'd be scattered if you're disobedient. But now the true Israel of God called from among the daughter of the dispersed in the Gentile nations. He's speaking of Christ. He's speaking of his church called to speak one language of praise. How far is this going to reach? How far do you think this is going to go? Look at verse 10 and see if you catch this the first time I read it. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. Remember what we saw back in chapter 2 and verse 12? The Cushim would be slain by the sword, a reference to the southernmost kingdom known to the prophet. It's a judgment that extends beyond what they ex- expect, beyond the furthest reaches of the earth. But look what he says in 3.10, that as far as the judgment extends, the salvation goes further not to Cush, beyond the rivers of Cush. God's worshipers bring his offering. The Nile was over 4,200 miles long, 22 million feet. 
if we were to get in our cars and drive to Los Angeles and back from where we're meeting here, roughly in Chicago, Los Angeles and back, it's about that long, long river. And the ancient Near Eastern mind really couldn't conceive of anything past that. And yet beyond the southernmost branches of the Nile comes an offering of worship. And here again, we see the gathering of the nations, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. They begin to gather way beyond. And this purity spoken of in verse 9 is found not only with the lips, but in the lives of those who gather. It's not just saying, it's doing that they may serve him with one accord. Not just saying, serving. The profession of God's sovereignty won't be with the mouth alone, but will be worshipful service devoted to him. The expression serve him with one accord literally means work with one shoulder. The idea here is working shoulder to shoulder, serving, working in a united effort. That's the church. One body, one bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The hand functioning, the foot functioning, the arm functioning. The church is the place of that common communion and fellowship and the work of worship, a communion that extends not to a political body or one group of people, but all over the world. The church lives out its eschatological hope in its service to the Lord. And ultimately, this prophecy sees its fulfillment in the great day of the Lord. Even within the church, there are those who don't speak a pure language. On that day, on the day of the Lord, the earth will be healed from the devastating effects of sin. There will be a deluge of fire to cleanse the earth from impurity, as there was a deluge of flood in the time of Noah. The Lord will execute, as Klein puts it, a thorough ethnic cleansing of the satanic genotype. And in the reversal of Babel, there will be a great multitude of which no one can number, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lord, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a purified language of the people of God. And that anticipation of a purified language leads to a posture of humility. And you see this in verses 11 and 12. Humility and a passion for praise are a pair of characteristics that uh, uh, together indicate a growth in grace. Humility and praise. Proud people don't praise. And the sanctified heart is one that bows down in humility and rises up in prayer. That's how Paul is in his letters. You notice it in his writings. As the years pass, he goes lower. He grows downward. As his self-valuation sinks, his rapturous praise, his adoration for God, it it rises. The whole first chapter of, of Ephesians is a doxology. That's what it is. Praise God. Three times he tells us that the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to the praise of God's glory. Zephaniah describes here a growth in sanctification culminating in perfect humility. Look how he puts this in 3, 11, and 12. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. 
For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a humble people and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. A lack of humility is the result of sin. The perfection of humility is the cleansing of sin. You shall not be put to shame because of your deeds. Sin will be eradicated. Without sin, there will be the restoration of a perfect harmony and communion with God. This is the realization of the eschatological promise held out to Adam and Eve. Even beyond Adam and Eve, when they were without sin and were not ashamed, when sin is eradicated, the remnant will be in the blessed state of immutable sinlessness and shamelessness. Verse 11 says this cleansing away of the proud and haughty is focused on God's holy mountain. And in the immediate context, there is a sense in which God's going to cleanse Judah of her sin through captivity to Babylon. Isaiah had prophesied this, Isaiah 2, 11 and 12, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled in the day of the Lord. Dozens of times the prophets had talked about the fact that God's judgment would begin at Jerusalem. And even in that judgment, though, the purging from Jerusalem is inseparably attached to redemption then. Uh, Micah, captures the the whole picture of judgment and redemption in one verse. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. From there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God wouldn't lead his people in captivity. He would lead them out. He would redeem them, bring them back to their own land. Why? Because he's faithful to his covenant promises. In Micah chapter 7, he says, again, will he have compassion on us? He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sin in the depths of the sea. Isaiah 54, for a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Because of the guarantee of God's everlasting covenant, He assures the true Israel of God that He would again in His holy mountain gather those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Isaiah anticipated the day when God would bring his people to his holy mountain, when God would make his people joyful in his house of prayer, when God would make his offerings and sacrifices acceptable because his house would be called a house of prayer for all peoples, that the Lord would gather together the outcasts of Israel on his mountain, not just geographical Israel. No, God says, I will gather others besides those already gathered. To Ezekiel, God says that on my holy mountain, all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me. They'll bring their offerings, they'll bring their sacrifices, and I will accept them on my holy mountain. And the fact that this is all done through Christ may not have been crystal clear to the Old Testament prophets. They they didn't know when God would come to dwell with them. They, They didn't know precisely how He would do so, but they knew that He would. They knew that there would be a day when God would reign in the midst of His people on Mount Zion. Isaiah 24, the glory of the Lord will be before His elders. And the promises of verses 11 and 12 come to fruition at one level, when the children of Israel about a century later would be released 
and they would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But a greater level was seen in the church as the temple. As God's people have been purified, who've been purged of sin, who continue to be sanctified in Him, whose speech has been changed as we gather together to worship the one true God, we gather as God comes to dwell with us. What a beautiful picture it is that when we get to the book of Hebrews and we read that when the church gathers, we've come to Mount Zion. When the church gathers, this is being fulfilled. We come to the city of the living God. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to the place of innumerable angels gathered in the festivity of worship. We've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven because we come to God and we worship Him along with the saints triumphant. And we do all this through the blood of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And yet, we're not done gathering, are we? We look forward to the fullness of our dwelling with God in Jerusalem. We have another beautiful picture of that in Revelation 14 where John looks and he sees the Lamb on Mount Zion with the 144,000 who have the name of their Father written on their heads, the ones who have not defiled themselves, the ones who follow the Lamb, the ones who've been redeemed by God. And John says, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And because their mouths have been purified, they're singing a new song before the throne upon which the Father is seated, around which the elders are gathered. Like Isaiah said, the glory of the Lord will be before his elders. The prophecy of Zephaniah in these verses here shows us the significance of what we're doing every time we gather as the church of Jesus Christ for worship. And it points us to the anticipation of that day when we will gather. And when we gather, we anticipate a greater gathering. When we gather in heaven around the throne of God, well, never again will sin shame us. Never again will we be separated from God. 